It's November 12, 2014, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's technology. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. First, we'll cover some local science and tech stories. Then we'll hear about an upcoming tech event. And joining us today is Ross Rasmussen from HMouse, and he's here to tell us about the Fall Fest 2014. Finally, we've invited Liberty Peralta and Shisa Kahaunaile from PBS Hawaii to talk about Hiki No now in its sixth year. Have your thoughts, questions, and ideas ready to call in or tweet us. But first, the headlines. Two weeks ago, the ownership of the United Kingdom Infrared Telescope, or UCIRT, was transferred from the UK's Science and Technology Facilities Council to the University of Hawaii. Now the Mauna Kea Telescope will be cooperatively operated by several organizations, including UH, the University of Arizona, Lockheed Martin Space Systems Company. The transfer was the result of a long series of maneuvers triggered by the Council's decision in May 2012 to cut its support to the observatory. There were 13 bids to take over the telescope. It took seven months for the new partnership to be solidified, and that included nine separate legal agreements. While the telescope had previously been used to research the historic evolution of the universe, its new mission will focus on space debris near Earth and asteroids. Lockheed Martin says the research will focus on the potential impact space debris could have on operating satellites and the effects on global communications, weather prediction, resource management, disaster preparedness, and commerce. Company product uh, program manager Matthew Bode said in a statement, our team composed of the universities of Arizona and Hawaii and NASA will extend the life of this important telescope. We plan to grow capability and continue addressing pressing questions about our universe as well as the space surrounding our planet. And, you know, I I thought that they had already been doing some of this uh, debris mapping, uh, you know, with the telescope, but uh, uh, it sort of brings to mind, you know, the um, discussion that we had with the B612 Foundation and how they're very concerned about, you know, the potential for asteroids that might have an impact with Earth. Right, and of course, uh, news being timely in terms of landing uh, our first craft on mm-hmm. a comet and mm-hmm, everything, mm-hmm. Um, getting more aware of these other bodies in space is, is important. I remember, because it's been two years since basically the United Kingdom says we're not going to fund mm-hmm. this telescope in Hawaii anymore, and what, were, what was going to be done with the facility, the telescope, and the space. Uh, UH will continue to hold the lease, obviously, and help operate it, but it's largely, it sounds like, a Lockheed Mar- Martin initiative, and space debris is certainly something that is timely uh, always in far, as far as yeah, I remember there. doing the story, but I, I didn't realize that it was a whole two years ago that uh, they decided to hand it over. But time sure goes by fast. Yeah, and the telescope's been running for 35 years and has That's done right. quite a bit. Yep. So I'm glad it has a second life. Yep. yep. Yesterday marked the 50th anniversary of the first undersea cable that connected Hawaii, Japan, and the U.S. mainland. The occasion was officially recognized by the IEEE, the Institute of Electrical and Electronic Engineers. It was 1964 when the Trans-Pacific Cable 1, or TPC-1, was inaugurated by President Lyndon Johnson and Japan Premier Hayato Ikeda. It was an $83 million project built by Hawaiian Telephone Company, AT&T, and Japan's KDDI. Company officials says the, the cable was a historic engineering feat that improved global communications and advanced deep water submarine cable technology. Many cables uh, would follow with later technologies allowing longer trans-Pacific cables to bypass Hawaii. 
Hawaiian Telecom recently joined an international consortium to build a new cable system to connect Hawaii to the Philippines, Guam, and California. The Southeast Asia U.S. or Seas U.S. cable is set to be completed by the end of 2016. And the company was selected in September to provide a cable landing station for Hawaii Cable, which is building a system connecting Australia and New Zealand to the U.S. West Coast via Hawaii. The 50th anniversary of TPC-1 is now one of 200 IEEE milestones and only the second here in Hawaii. The other Hawaii-based milestone, by the way, is the Opana radar site, which marked the first operational use of radar in wartime during the attack on Pearl Harbor. Now, you know, this uh, TPC-1 Trans-Pacific Cable, everybody might be thinking, wow, you know, so it was that long ago that they laid their uh, first fiber cable? It wasn't even fiber. This was like a cable cable, cable <laughs> like <laughs> copper cable. So you can imagine how our sort of communications was being transmitted and, and uh, the rare occasion when digital transmission uh, was being uh, uh, you know put over that cable. And then I think uh, uh, Southern Cross was probably one of the major cables that came in after that that uh, really provided the, the bulk of the fiber right. that ultimately is serving our communications. But as the story notes, at that after a certain point, these cables got so good and the deployment, the technology got so good, they didn't need to make a stop. They didn't have a break in Hawaii. They could just go direct from the Asia to the U.S. Same thing with air, air flights to be uh, yeah, well, frankly. you know, that was really kind of due to the uh, fiber optics and, and repeater technology mm-hmm. where they didn't need to have it be landed in Hawaii to, you know, repeat the signal. They could use repeaters that basically bypass this. But I think it's good that it's kind of cool. There's a plaque now at the Hawaiian Telecom building. The same thing has ha- happened in Japan over in Tokyo at KDDI's headquarters. So that's another small piece of telecommunications history for Hawaii. Yeah, and hopefully we'll make it to the next phase of our broadband connectivity with more fiber optics to, you know, kind of keep us current with the 21st century. Anyway, finally, here's a couple of uh, stories we wanted to share with you. Today, after the show, the the monthly Wetware Wednesday networking event will take place over at the Manifest in Chinatown. The November event is sponsored by Startup Weekend Honolulu and Sakrata and will feature the recent Biz Pitch Camp. Uh, there will be free appetizers and no host bar and a great opportunity to meet other software developers and entrepreneurs. That'll be over at the Manifest at 32 North King Street, and that's going to be from 6 to 8 p.m. tonight. A reminder, as featured on last week's show, this Friday kicks off the 6th Startup Weekend Honolulu event. The event ties Honolulu to 200 other cities around the year, around the world this year, and they're competing both in the general and social impact track. For information on that, you can go to honolulu.startupweekend.org. And uh, next week, Island Funder is launching two new campaigns. Island Funder, featured earlier this year on Bite Marks Cafe, is a crowdfunding site focused on Hawaii projects. Next week, Island Funder will launch campaigns to benefit Access Surf, a local nonprofit that provides ocean access for those with cognitive and physical challenges. Uh, and, of course, uh, there's um, Corradorables. Corradorables. Corradorables, a children's wear company. Uh, And for more information, you can visit islandfunder.com. All right. Well, now for another event coming up. Joining us here in the studio is Ross Rasmussen from HMouse. And uh, now joining us on the phone as well, Apple guru Christopher Breen calling in from California. They're both here to preview an upcoming event called Fall Fest 2014. Welcome to the show, Ross and Chris. Thank you very much. Thanks. So, uh, Ross, since we got you here in the studio and, and uh, you've been 
I guess, feverishly sending out the announcements about the Fall Fest 2014. Tell us, what is Fall Fest? I mean, I, I usually hear about Oktoberfest, but what is Fall Fest? Well, we wanted to shift the uh, focus a little bit away from Oktoberfest, and we're celebrating our 35th anniversary this year of as an organization. 35 years. 35 years, years yeah. And so we said, well, let's let's just sort of put everything together, and we got a, a, a space at Dave & Buster's at the end of the month. And we thought it would be a good time for us to look back at where we've been and kind of look forward to what's what's coming up for, mm-hmm, for mm-hmm. Apple and, and people who use that technology in mm-hmm. the future. Now, I want to keep things polite for our guests that are coming on the show later today, but one of them was born after you bought your first Mac. I mean, so that's a personal story. And because of this history of the Macintosh and the Apple com- company, um, where did you come in? I mean, you're still you're now the president of the organization, but how did you first fall in love with Apple? I, I got a, a small inheritance and I thought, I, I think I'm going to get one of those computers. And I went to a friend's house, and he had a Macintosh. And I was all set to buy a PC, and I said, oh, I really like that a whole lot better. So I bought one, the first of many, many, many computers that I've bought since then. So was was it the original Macintosh, the uh, no, luggable? I, no, I was the Mac. Two. Oh, okay. So we were, I was rocking it, big screen <laughs> and, and a laser printer. And man, I was, <laughs> and I spent my entire inheritance on it. But I, I, thought, it was, <laughs> I thought it was money well spent. I, I, I carried that uh, laser printer around for years until it finally died on me. Now, Chris Breen is a senior editor of Macworld. He's also a podcaster. I know his voice well and an actual working musician um, in California. And uh, again, thank you for coming on the show. Um, you know, Macworld has also been around some time for some time. Before that, it was Mac user, I think, you were affiliated with. But yeah. uh, now that Ross has talked a little bit about his history, I was wondering if you could share, in addition to what you might talk about when you uh, present at HMouse uh, remotely, uh, it, I think right now, today, is a very exciting time for Apple and Mac as well. Am I wrong? No, I think it's really exciting. I think Apple is, you know, people look to Apple to be the leader in a lot of technology trends. They're not always on top of the market, but they're doing pretty well. So I think other companies wait to see what Apple's going to do, like, for example, the Apple Watch. And they go, oh, that's how we should do it. And then they, that's what they do, and people follow along after them. So they're doing very well, I think. They've made some interesting moves lately that are going to predict what's going to happen in the next couple of years. And, of course, their past is very rich as well. Now, Chris, uh, you know, when you've been involved with Macworld for uh, you know, a fair amount of time. And, of course, Macworld was a, a very popular uh, hard copy magazine and, and uh, also online. Of course, you know, there were the, uh, the Macworld conferences. And a lot of that has sort of gone away. And, and perhaps even the, the you know, associating Apple with Mac is... Uh, it's diminishing. I mean, what is your sense of where things are going with regard to just referencing the computer as as Mac or you know you know just like uh, HMouse is primarily kind of talking about Macintosh? Where do you think that's all going? Well, I think it's all part of a, a larger trend where it used to be that all our information was held on a computer, and that's what we looked for, and we would dangle things off there in sort of this octopodal way. But now it's much more about where is your stuff. Well, your mm-hmm, stuff's up in the cloud, mm-hmm. and you use your iPhone, which is a little window on your stuff, or you use your Mac, which is a big window on your stuff, or your iPad, which is a medium-sized window on your stuff. So it's really about you don't much care where things are. It's just you want to get access to them. So the Mac is still important to Apple, but it's just part of that ecosystem, along with all the other devices and the web, which is an integral part of it as well. 
Now, Chris, um, I know that uh, you're going to cover some certain topics for uh, Fall Fest, and I don't want to sort of spoil that. And I, I relish the opportunity to speak with you, given your long expertise um, in uh, in Apple and Mac. And so one of the topics that I wanted to pick your brains about, and you mentioned it, is the Apple Watch. You know, uh, I have friends who are very, very happy with their Pebble watches. I'm thinking even though I want to wait for the Apple Watch, I might even like the Pebble enough to just get it to bridge that little gap. And, of course, uh uh, Android Wear has given us a few devices that have a unified interface but different hardware. But I think Apple Watch is uh, is a really big move for Apple, not just because it's a new category of space, but uh, tell me if I'm wrong, it sounds like the watch might appeal to people who aren't really looking for technology. It might be more of a piece of jewelry, a piece of fashion for some people than it is something that nerds like us here on the radio right now would seek out just because it's a new piece of tech. Do you think that might happen? Yeah, I, I think it's appealing for a couple of different reasons. One is that, yes, for nerds, it's going to be great because you're going to have an expensive piece of hardware on your wrist. It's going to act as kind of a terminal for your iPhone that's in your pocket. But it's also going to act as a trigger. So when you walk into your house, it's going to know you're there because your Apple Watch is going to tell it so. And then all your smart appliances are going to tick off and go, oh, you're home? Okay, let's turn the fan on. Let's do this. Let's chill the bottle of champagne. And then there are everybody else who's going, wow, that looks really cool. Because as you've seen from the various watches that have come out, they're not very attractive. And the Apple Watch is kind of good looking. Now, if you're going to pay $5,000 for the gold one, <laughs> I don't know how that's going to work out. Because a year from now, they're going to come out with a new one. And you're going to go, oh, I want so, the new one now. So I think there's going to be a trade-in. Program. Chris, what was, that, what was that price point you said? 5000 I For the gold one, that's not... Out of the ballpark. I mean, you don't. Nope, they haven't said. Right, but right, if you right. Were to that's buy why. A gold Rolex. Now, that's the kind of money you'd be paying, and up from there. Now, what do you think of the uh, the interface? I mean, there were so many little icons on that small little screen. I mean, do you think that's the kind of surface that would allow people to interact with that watch? I have to think so. I mean, one thing that Apple's really good is at UI. So I can't believe that they would just pack the thing to the point where you can't touch anything. Right, right. So I think they'll make it simple enough to use. If they don't, it's going to be a problem. And I, I think they've invested a lot of uh, interest and a lot of money in this thing to come out of the gate. If it doesn't work well, it's a bad idea. Right. Mm-hmm. And I like what they are doing with the crown, for example, to do the zooming. It's an actual piece of yeah. hardware, which I think is kind of neat. The other topic that I wanted to pick your brain about, because I experienced it quite a bit on a recent trip that I took to Orlando and then New Orleans, is Apple Pay, which, you know, I, all of my Google Android friends says, oh, you know, welcome to 2011 or whatever. But it did seem much different and much simpler than I thought to the point that the first two times I did it, both times I had to walk past a CVS to go to a Walgreens, um, that was like, is that, um, did I pay for it? Did that actually happen? I mean, it seemed so easy that it boggled my mind that something had actually happened. Um, one, I mean, has that been your experience? And two, do you think that it is as, as magical and transformative that I certainly felt like it was? I think it is. Um, I mean, and it's also such a smart move for Apple. I've been talking about the iPhone as, as money for years, and it's finally happened. It makes a lot of sense for us because it's really convenient. The security is much better because of the way they do credit card stuff. And Apple's making money on it. Um, sure, they make only 0.65% on each transaction, but we, uh, I think in the U.S. there's something like several million dollars of transactions per day. So if Apple gets a hefty chunk of that, that could be a huge amount of money for them. Wow, that sounds very, very, uh, very compelling. I, I'm, I'm tempted to. He's still stuck on I'm, the five. Uh, you know, <laughs> upgrade and, and Apple needs yeah. that money. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ross, uh, you know the the um, 
events coming up? I mean, I know Chris is going to be a part of it. I mean, what uh, what else do you have on the uh, lineup for you know this up- upcoming Fall Fest 2014? Well, uh, we have our uh, friend Joe Kissel, who's also we spoke with him uh, on the radio last mm-hmm. year. Mm-hmm. And Joe Kissel's also going to come in, and our we have a whole group of people that are trying to put together something that allows us to come together. And, and just have a, a chance to talk. I mean, besides the speakers that we're bringing in, we want to get together as a group and just say, well, look back at 35 years and see how many of the people that were there 35 years ago, right, number one, are still alive <laughs> and, 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 and maybe could be rolled into the, into the room and, uh, and, and make, a, make an appearance. Now, Chris, uh, what specifically will be the theme of the things you'll be presenting uh, remotely for HMouse Fall Fest? I'm going to be talking about Apple's past, present, and future. So, actually, some of the stuff I've just talked about, I'm going to hint at. Mm. Um, where, you know, how things have changed and how Apple's kind of leading the world in terms of us acquiring and managing our information. Well, that's going to be, uh, that's going to be exciting. And, you know, Ross, I mean, I've attended this event. I've brought my wife. I've brought my kids. What I like about HMouse is that it is a very broad demographic group. You've got hardcore geeks. You've got the startup app folks who are way too young. And you've got, you know, a lot of um, more experienced technology people who do like to come together, see what's new, but maybe reminisce as well. I mean, I've, I can't think of a tech event with the specific uh, breadth of demographic background that participate with, like, at an HMouse event. Yeah, we try to try to throw a pretty wide uh, net mm-hmm. and and just try to invite people in and and give them something that would say, oh well, it was worth coming to this event. Well, what I've learned is that the H Mouse people are very welcoming, and whatever age you are, if you have a question, the H Mouse folks will definitely bring you in and and help answer that question. Now, tell us exactly when, where is this taking place? It's uh, Saturday, November 29th at, from 10 to 1 at Dave and Buster's. Okay. And Ward. And uh, do you have a URL for us or shall I just put that up on the the show notes? We have a a link so that you can sign up and you can always go to our homepage, hmouse.org. All right. Well, first of all, Chris, thank you for joining us uh, remotely today. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, thanks for having me. And Ross, thank you very much for coming down to the studio. My pleasure. Thanks again. And, of course, that's what's been happening this week. We'll take a short break, and when we return, we'll be joined by Shisa uh, Kahaunaili. Yes. Kahaunaili and... Liberty Peralta to join us uh, to talk about Hikino. Hikino, the Student News Network. How has it evolved over the last six years? We'd, of course, love to hear your thoughts, particularly if you participated in this innovative program. You can give us a call at 941-3689 or reach us toll-free from the neighbor islands at 877-941-3689. And, of course, unlike last week, we're live in the studio, so you can tweet us at ByteMarks or at Hawaii, and you're listening to ByteMarks Cafe. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Matthew Fox, and I'm author of the book Meister Eckhart, A Mystic Warrior for Our Times. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about how all of us are called to be mystic warriors in our time. Sunday morning at 11. Revel in an evening of world jazz with Urbane Cool, led by multilingual jazz vocalist Allison Adams Tucker. Her April in Paris tour comes to HPR's Atherton Studio on Saturday, November 22nd at 7.30 p.m. Make your reservations now at hprtickets.org or by calling 955-8821 during business hours. 
Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Whole Foods Market Hawaii, Ferraro Choi, and Ulupono Initiative. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And joining us today is Liberty Peralta and Shisa Kaunaili. Liberty is the Director of Communications over at PBS Hawaii. Meanwhile, Shisa graduated from Kamehameha School's Kapalama this year. She now works as a student production technician at PBS Hawaii, among other jobs. And, of course, the uh, what are some of the success stories as a result of Hikino? And I think we have one of them in here w- in the studio with us. Of course, we'd love to hear your questions and comments. And that number to call is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. Shisa and Liberty, we want to welcome you both to Bite Marks Cafe. Thank you for Thank having you. us. So, Liberty, you know, this has been going on for six years, just mm-hmm. about as long as Bite Marks That's Cafe. Right. That's <laughs> and, right. And I think, you know, we, we had um, uh, Leslie Wilcox on probably about a year into the program, you know, mm-hmm. just to kind of get a sense of what the uh, Student News Network was all about. But uh, tell us a little bit about uh, maybe the journey that you've taken uh, over this uh, last six years. Yeah, okay. So I actually came in, uh, I came on board at PBS Hawaii right when the uh, first Hikino broadcasts, um, the first season ended. So that was in June. I came on board June 2011, mm-hmm. and the first season aired March of that same year. Mm-hmm. So I just come on board. But I, I know that it had been in development for a few years before I came on board. Um, Leslie, of course, was um, spearheading that effort along with uh, um, Linda Brock, who was in the position that I'm in now at mm-hmm. PBS Hawaii when she was there at the time. She she also played a very instrumental role. And Robert Pennybacker, who now is the executive producer of Hikino. Um, so it's been it's been a long journey. Um, it's it's very it's very encouraging to see the momentum that it's gained over the past six years. Um, I, I guess it's maybe three or four years out in the public, right? But right. W- including all the development stuff. I see. So yeah, yeah, the six years was really kind of inclusive of the developmental right. years, yeah. right? And and uh, Jisa, you've. Uh, been involved, I guess, with uh, with uh, Hikino for while you were at Kamehameha School. But how many uh, years were you involved during that that time in your uh, sort of uh, high school years? During my high school years, actually in it for all four years. Oh, all four wow. years! And I was actually in the program when it first started. So the six years I was their first. I was like their pilot program. Oh. at um, I went to Chiefs Kamakahele Middle School on Kauai, and mm-hmm. it was crazy. You know, you just get thrown into like they're like showing us all these like. Um, ideas that they want to do and they actually have embarrassing footage of me in my middle school years i'll have to google that yeah (laughs) check that out (laughs) they have like all these pictures and it's just so crazy to see like from when we wanted like what we wanted to do and what we're actually doing so so can you uh recollect back there back then in your sort of formative years like how did you get uh roped into this did somebody come to you and say she said we want to put you on tv well, how did they, you know, how did they bring you into the, the whole process of, you know, getting involved? With or was it an ambition you always had? Yeah. Well, actually, starting with my mentor Kevin Matsunaga and Leah Kiharo, those are my two video teachers. Kevin 
Mr. Matsunaga actually was so excited for this to happen. You know, he's always looking for new opportunities mm-hmm. for students. Mm-hmm. And he has the same vision that um, Leslie Walcox had and all the Robert Pennybacker, everyone who wanted difference for um, Hawaii students in video. And it was just from there. I was like, that passion that I saw in him definitely, like, it just reflected into myself. And I just, ever since then, I was like, more videos. I want to put all these stories out. And when you watch stories today that are hitting big news, like Hawaii News Now, they're picking up these stories from Hikino and it's, it's so gratifying for students, you know, like that, that was my idea. That was my concept. And I'm helping get that word out so other people know about it. Mm-hmm. Now, Liberty, I mean, the first statewide news, student news network where students mm-hmm. create the content. PBS is one of the vehicles to get that out, of course, online right. as well. Right. Um, but I like what Shisa said, that some stories that were perhaps very closely uh, beloved or important stories to a specific community that might not otherwise catch the attention of a Hawaii News Now or the Star Advertiser or a statewide um, network, it, it was sort of a way to bring that to the fore. So uh, I, I wanted to ask you, I mean, maybe Hikino, for a lot of people, perhaps to me, might have felt like it's it's an educational laboratory, it's helping students, it's getting them the tools and skills to work in multimedia. But mm-hmm. I think I've also heard people cite Hikino as a news outlet, like a legitimate bona fide outlet. I mean, uh, how, how would you say that has evolved? Uh, it's it's something that I, I think we just really didn't expect. Um, we, we really just wanted when we... When PBS Hawaii started Hikino and when Hikino was in development, we were really just thinking, okay, how can we reach out um, to all of the all the students statewide? Um, and we were also thinking of um, test scores and how just education in general was in Hawaii. How can we provide a program that engages them and you know, encourages them to learn in a way that's hands-on and sort of an alternative to, you know, your traditional book style mm-hmm, right, of right. learning. And um, you you guys know this, but I, be, I actually came up through the Waianae High School Secret Productions program, the multimedia program there. Right, and that was actually uh, an inspiration from what I understand um, in developing this Hikino programming, right, taking right. their their, their um, program in basically encouraging schools statewide to to do something similar. Uh-huh. Now, Shisa, I see, you know, you host programs, you're at an anchor desk, you've got the nice green screen set up and very poised, probably very professional teleprompter work going on as well. Um, but I'm, I'm curious, you know, there's the, there's, the, there's the news or the feature story kind of profile angle that happens, but I'm curious uh, if there's also uh, a place at Hikino for a student that's thinking more of uh, narrative, fiction, creative, storytelling, um, you know, the other ways that people sometimes apply video skills and, and technology tools to create something. Is that something that uh, that someone can still benefit from Hikino for, or is it still more of a track for uh, journalists and, and media makers on that side? You know, as far as Hikino itself, it comes off as a very journalistic um, learning tool. Mm-hmm. But when you look into it, the values that they teach you that I've taken personally is more than just it's about having to deal with and figure out how to deal with today's industry, which is something that um, students my age really need to understand because they have very high standards for Hikino videos. That's why you send in rough drafts and they give you feedback. And um, learning constructive criticism is something that everyone can learn. And having to respond to that professionally Mm -hmm. is definitely something that we as students need today. But also the whole um, encompassing the whole value of you can do it. You know what I mean? It's they don't they don't ever bring up your age because they all know that we're young. But they base us. They judge us based off our professional character. 
And that's something that I definitely think that animators, people who want to do fiction, definitely have to learn that. And it's it's not necessarily the hard way because PBS isn't there to be mean and break you down, but they're just trying to build you up, which mm-hmm. is definitely something that everyone can benefit from. When you, uh, when you first got started, what were some of the ideas that you wanted to cultivate to turn into a story? I had some pretty crazy ideas, especially at Kamehameha. I was like, oh, I want to do everything Hawaiian and things like that. And my teacher finally told me, she's you know, a lot of you know people out there are more than just Hawaiian. We have lots of cultures here in Hawaii, and other people want to watch it too. So she's like, let's do something more Mm community-based, which we did. And um, actually, the story that I won the Hikino Award on was for the Queen's recollection, the Queen's new story, and how they expanded it and and everything. So I kind of got the best of both worlds where I got to give my Hawaiian culture, but it was more so people knew that everything that happened and it's re-released. So it's definitely teaching me how to balance the best of both worlds where I can have what I want, but also give the people what they want as well. We're talking to Liberty Peralta, Director of Communications at PBSY, as well as Shisa Kaunaela, Kaunaela, who is a student production technician at PBSY, a graduate of Kamehameha Schools, and of course uh, holding down other jobs as well, taking over the world. If you've <laughs> got a question or comment about Hiki No, or if you've got experience with the program, we'd love to hear from you at 941-3689 on Oahu, or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. Um, Liberty, six years is a long time, mm-hmm. and I think we I do want to talk, uh, ask you later on about the new facility that's going to be built as well. But one of the things that comes to my mind when you say six years is that's a long time for technology, for software, yeah. for applications, even for practices. Mm-hmm. So I can you tell me uh, from the day from that the coming in at the end of that first season to where you are today, uh, particularly for our geeky audience, mm-hmm. I mean, have the tools, the pieces of equipment, the pieces of software changed dramatically in that time? It's uh, that's actually one of the challenges, both in you mentioned the new facility and with Hikino is because right now we have 90 middle and high schools and actually one elementary school in in our network. And there they aren't all on the same level when it comes to the kinds of equipment they have. Um, So so you'll have um, schools that have more they're able to have more advanced stuff. Like certainly Waianae comes up as maybe one of those schools, but then you have other schools that are just starting out. And um, so you just have all these varying levels of schools to contend with. For a school that uh, is just starting out or doesn't have that budget, um, what would that sort of starter set look like? I mean, is it uh, Apple-based? You have an iMac maybe and, a, and, a, and just filming it on a phone? Or are you still looking for something a little beyond uh, what a consumer might have? I think we would... Yeah, I think we would have to look at something a little more um, advanced than than an iPhone. Um, I would suggest to any teacher out there that's interested in in starting out a class that uh, has Hikino uh, as part of its curriculum is to talk with your administrators and see what kind of grants are out there for um, even even something, uh, maybe just a prosumer uh, camcorder, uh, and a laptop with some basic editing software. So in terms of, uh, you know, being, uh, I guess, equipped to be a participant, <clears throat> there's a certain barrier or obstacle that the school has to kind of overcome before right. they get accepted to the program, right? Right. I mean, they would have to get support from their administration, mm-hmm. for, for what, sure. What's the most common way that that happens, whether it's a multimedia track at the school that is identified as a priority? Are they seeking grants or some, some way to fund it as a specific initiative? Um, 
I've heard of schools that will just contact our um, – so Susan Yim is our managing editor. They'll just contact her and see what they can do to, to work things out. Um, I, I'm sort of removed sure. from that process, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I'm not exactly familiar, but I know that that's happened before too. Well, I have to tell you, I mean, just from the episodes that I've seen, I should, I'm should. i sure if I've seen all 600 or so, but I've seen a few of them. <laughs> um, you know, I worked for a little while as a lecturer at UH at their communication school. They had they have their own sort of studio set up. Actually, I think they were using the basement studio at PBS Hawaii for mm-hmm. some of that. Um, the, the, the work that these high school students and, 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 as you said, middle school, even younger students are doing can pretty much stand up to what college students and perhaps even some beginning professionals can do. And that's very impressive. Now, Shisa, for you, you said, you know, you started early, you wanted to tell these stories, um, but you have to learn how to take criticism. Um, although I don't want to, to cause any trauma, I'm curious as a, as a person moving into this uh, as, a, as a job, what were some of the things that you that were identified as challenges for you that you struggled with that some of the constructive feedback that you had to work with when you got started? I think the biggest challenge was the fact that I'm making stories about things in my community. So the problem with that is that I'm so close to these stories because this is like, this is my home. You know, these are things that happen that affect me and the people that I love. And when people tell you that that idea is needs to be fleshed out, needs to be fixed, there are things that need to be done to make it more public, you kind of take it as a personal issue. Mm. But then you realize that if more people can connect to this, if more people can understand this and share this, then that's the real benefit is getting the main story out there and allowing people to give me that extra push to make that. You know, it's it's more it, it'll take down my pride and really show me mm. real world experiences. Mm-hmm. Now, when you were on uh, Kauai and having the opportunity to create a story, uh, were the rest of the tools there available to you? So once you had the story, maybe you got the, you know, got the people that wanted to participate in helping to tell that story. Uh, did you have to assemble a team to actually finish the, the product to deliver to PBS? And, well, and how did you get those people to get involved? Well, actually, it's it's a typical, um, well, when I started at Chiefess, it was the two pilot years that we were doing training and things like that. But when we did have to do interviews, it was more of everything is student-led. So mm-hmm. we would create a, a team in class for my teacher. He would assign us a group. And then we would figure out, okay, you would be the writer. We'll all go over the script later. You know, it's like a pitch party. You go and you give your ideas. Mm-hmm. And it's so cool you know, to be that young and to get to do professional things like this and it was just from that process of interviewing people, and the community was very supportive. You know, this is a chance to really support the kids that, you know, these are their kids. This is, like, the generation that they're nurturing. And it was just, they were very supportive, and the feedback now is even more supportive. So it's, like, from that, it was it was kind of weird because, um, you know, you're so young in this professional world. Mm. But we had the teachers there. PBS came down, and they actually helped train us. And that in itself was the reason why, like, it's just such a solid foundation. So it, it was they made it foolproof for everyone to understand and to figure out the tools, have the tools and use them wisely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're talking to Liberty Peralta and Shisa Kaunaile from PBS Hawaii's Hikino program, uh, director of communications there and a veteran of the program. If you've participated or if you're curious about ways to help students make media to tell stories and find a statewide audience through PBS, you can give us a call at 941-3689 or toll free from the neighbor islands 877-941-3689. We're also listening for you 
on Twitter. I'm at Hawaii, and Bert is at Bite Marks. Liberty, obviously, we have a success story here, which she's still working now at PBS Hawaii, among other things. But mm-hmm. uh, I'm curious, from your point of view, what other success stories uh, in, in broad terms um, have you seen? Because six years is enough time for a student to come all the way through the program, go into college, and start seeking professional opportunities. What are some examples uh, of those uh, those for- former students and participants? I've heard of students who've gone through Hikino that some of them didn't have a clue what they were going to do after high school. Mm. And they go through this Hikino uh, program and they decide they want to be a filmmaker or they decide they want to be a journalist. I I know one student went to an East Coast college, Ivy School College. I can't think of which one, but Mm. he's he's there studying journalism. print journalism actually which i thought was very interesting yeah print what is that (laughs) hey stop it yes (laughs) so uh but the thing is i I just want to emphasize too is it's not necessarily we're not trying to purposefully tell these students Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. pursue journalism or or work in media the the broader picture is that we just want we want to prepare these students for the real world for professional life and to arm them with the basic foundation of the skills that they need to, mm-hmm. to do that. Now, now, Liberty, you said you had 90 schools, and, and I'm not sure what the, uh, the starting count was, but uh, what is it that the, let's say, the mentors needed to have in their sort of hip pocket to actually roll this program out to the students? Because the mentors really are the ones that guide the students along. And mm-hmm. like in, in Shisa's case, if there's a, uh, a mentor there that really embraces journalism and wants students to go out there and find the truth about that story, uh, what kind of qualifications are you looking for in the school and the instructor or that mentor to actually carry the program forward? Okay, so um, a couple of things. So each school, of course, has a teacher who's in charge of, it's usually a media teacher, mm-hmm. Sometimes it's actually an English teacher or, or some other kind of teacher that's that's just um, d- doing the Hikino program uh, as an extracurricular activity. So it's something that they do o- outside of regular school hours. And that's actually a good chunk of the Hikino participating mm-hmm. schools. Mm-hmm. They, they do it after school. Uh, but I would say with, this, the, with the teachers, what we're looking for is just someone who's tenacious. Because especially when... Um, I should mention, too, that Hikino actually provides free professional development for these teachers to know how to teach the students how to tell an effective um, video story. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say tenacious teacher. Um, it would help if if the teacher was a, a fast learner as well, because there is a lot of um, training, uh, it's just storytelling training. So and just someone that's interested in implementing this in a classroom. And um, have you found uh, a, a long waiting list? Is it a challenge to find these professionals willing to, to share those stories? Or is this opportunity so attractive that, uh, that, that, that it, it naturally brings people to the table? Schools will just call us. And actually, uh, this year, we've had about 15 schools contact us mm-hmm. interested mm-hmm. in being interested in uh, joining Hiki Now. Uh, I, think it's, I think it's just through word of mouth um, in, with, with, within the schools. Um, as far as the, the mentors, so what happens is with each episode of Hikino, the, each school, uh, they basically take the list of schools and they group them up by teams. 
and the team of schools makes up an episode of Hikino. So usually there will be seven schools on average mm-hmm. that, that participate in an episode of Hikino. And each episode or each team has a professional mentor guiding each um, of the students from each school, um, giving them feedback about their stories. So those mentors are... They're usually professionals. Um, they're longtime veterans of film or journalism uh, that are assigned to each of these teams. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I want to hold that thought. I do want to learn more about this seven episode and how, perhaps how those are put together. We'll be right back after the short break to continue our conversation with Liberty Peralta and Shisa Kahaunailev about six years of running this student news network. And what I want to find out is how did the journalism part of Kamehameha School really translate into now UH's journalism studies. So we'll get back to uh, that question. Uh, Of course, we'd love to hear your questions as well. And of course, you can call us at 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands at 877-941-3689. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I listen to Hawaii Public Radio every morning when I'm driving to work. It it energizes me for the day and it gives me that information that I need to be effective informs my day. And uh, I really relish that time in the car, as crazy as that may sound, to actually uh, to be educated on what's going on in the world. Member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Radio with vision. Listen and see. On the next On Being, discovering the cosmology of Bach with computer scientist Bernard Chazelle. Bach wouldn't have never thought of himself as a maker of music. Bach saw himself, like Newton, not as the maker of a craft, but as a discoverer of the laws of the musical universe. I'm Krista Tippett. Please join us. Sunday morning at 10. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ran Ozawa, and we're talking to Liberty Peralta and Shisa Kaunaile about PBS Hawaii's student news network, Hiki No. And, of course, uh, has student participation contributed to the broader understanding of the communities that they tell stories about? And, of course, you can give us a call here. The number is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. And we wanted to drill Liberty, a little bit more. So, Ryan. Right. Right before the break, you said that about seven schools participate. So, it's a good cross-section every time you watch an episode of Hiki No. What I mm-hmm. wanted to know is, is that pre-set up? Like, okay, uh, episode 703 is going to be Kauai High School, Hilo High School, and all of that. Um, does that happen? And are there themes to an episode that they all try to focus on? Or is it pretty much how things come in? I'm going to answer the themes question okay. first. <laughs> so, uh in a typical episode, there isn't an overarching theme, but we do sometimes have episode special edition episodes that do have a theme. Um, there was one recent episode, and Shisa might be familiar with this, and we took the theme of the Hokulea, which is Malama Honua, mm-hmm. and we sort of took that theme and made a, a show made of stories that talk about commu- building community. Um, so that's an example. I see, I see. And we've had themes about the environment, um, technology. Do things sort of naturally come up, like perhaps, you know, yeah, election we'll see day a trend. and stuff like that? Yeah, 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 we'll see a trend and then we'll say, oh, that, that would make a good the- thematic episode. But in your, your typical episode, it's not, there's, there's no overarching theme. And do schools get picked 
at the start of the season, like, okay, uh, uh, Maui High School is going to be, or Baldwin is going to be 603, or 603 and 609 or something or not? So what happens is at the beginning of the season, and I hope Robert Pennypacker calls in and can clarify, because <laughs> it's, it's really him and Susan Yem that do oh, the that. Programming. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think at the beginning of the season, or before the season even starts, they'll take the list of schools, they'll prearrange them into these teams and assign a producer or a, a mm. mentor, the professional in the community, to each episode. And sometimes things happen where the schools have to move around just mid-season, um, like we'll shift stories around just depending on when we get them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but overall, uh, yes, they're, they're preset. Mm. Now, now, Shisa, you, you know, you've uh, obviously are, are um, an overachiever, let me just say it, because, you know, you've got four jobs, you're going to school, <laughs> you're, you know, doing everything. <laughs> now, you know, when you think about how much work goes into producing a Hikino story, to me, that's like, that's like a full semester course in and of itself. But you're doing this after school. So does this apply to any grade that you get? I mean, your your mentor, I mean, he's he's just doing it as an after school activity or is this part of an English class or some class that, you know, you might be taking at Kamehameha School? At both um schools, my middle school mm-hmm. and my high school, mm-hmm. it was a part of the curriculum, but you start to realize that there is not enough time in a class for you to produce, write, edit and all of this for a video. And then you do it after school and it starts to just become a passion. That story is, it temporarily becomes your life because it's your job to tell the story. You know what I mean? So I was getting a grade for it, but you just create such a personal connection to the story that you're like, I want this to be perfect. It's not about the grade anymore. And I think that's why a lot of the stories have been like, all the stories have been so well written. Mm -hmm. And it's definitely from a student's point of view, but the way they present it is so professional. Can you can you share a little bit about what the other students in your team might have uh, thought about the program and and how maybe what they gained out of the experience? I would definitely say the other students with me at Kamehameha. It was frustrating. You know, it was quick turnaround time. We have a lot of assignments to do, but it was definitely such such a relief and such a good comeback. You know, to hear all the good feedback and what everyone has to say. You can read all the comments on Facebook and things like that. And that's what definitely made it worth it. It's, it teaches everyone hard work. And I know for myself and my, my classmates, it was a lot of hard work. Mm-hmm, and it was mm-hmm. so stressful. But you learn that that's what the real world is about. It's deadlines. And it's about meeting those expectations, even though you have a quick turnaround time. And it's hard, but it's definitely worth it. Mm-hmm. We're talking to Liberty Peralta and Shisa Kahunaile about Hikino, the Student News Network, now in its sixth season and moving forward and evolving. If you've participated or you are interested in it, this might be the time to call in at 941-3689 or toll-free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Uh, now, so Shisa, you're you're working several jobs and you're still a student. You're at UH, correct? Yes. Uh, are you in that journalism program or is there another path that you're taking? Well, actually, you can't, um, as a freshman, you don't get to choose your major until your sophomore year. But oh, okay. I was accepted in the communications program. But my main field of study is going to be journalism and communications. Uh, definitely, I want to be an anchor and things like that. So Ooh. everything I learned at Hikino, everything I'm learning working at Kamehameha Schools as well is definitely making me equipped for the future, hopefully. Uh, is there any, was there involvement at some point, or maybe Liberty might know this question, with the UH Communications Program and Hikino, or is it just sort of just how anything might happen organically? 
you know the for the for the university's communities program because I know when I w- worked with them that I would see the Hikino studio when I went to the PBSY basement but I'm not sure if there was any actual direct interaction. I I don't think there was any mm. direct interaction with um with ACM or with UH. Um we do share a building our, our current mm. station we share a building with uh, Academy for Creative Media but we were really just concentrating on the the grade schools. I see, I yeah. see. Well, I think it might be a natural to, to build on something like that, which she's coming into the ranks her sophomore year. <laughs> it might be uh, unavoidable. You know, we uh, we put the call on, and we have Kevin from Kaimuki. Uh, welcome to the show, Kevin. Hello? Hi. Hello. Hi. Um, I'm a parent of a, of a son who was uh, a beneficiary of, of the Hikino program. It just uh, whetted his appetite. Uh, and I just want you to know that he it 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 encouraged him and and he's just begun his freshman year at uh, at the film school at NYU. It's uh, wow. it's the Tisch. It's known as Tisch in one of the mm-hmm. premier schools um, in film. And I just wanted to thank uh, 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 those people who uh, who support. Hikino, because it definitely whetted our son's appetite. What school? Oh, uh, what school was he? Uh, did he work with? What high school was that? Yeah. It was uh, Mid Pacific Institute. Ah, wow. Very good. Well, well thanks. It's nice to hear. Thanks, Kevin, for uh, calling in. Yeah, thanks for sharing your experience. Thank you. Now yeah, you know. I, oh, uh, oh, go ahead, Kevin. I wish our son was here to uh, listen <laughs> to the program, but obviously. Well, you can uh, you can send him the uh, podcast later on, and he can listen. Talk to hear about how proud you are. Yeah. I'm just. I'm also proud of the Hikino program, and you need to know that. All right. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you so much, Kevin. Thank well, Liberty, you. that's. Uh, I think. Uh, uh, thanks to uh, you and PBS and uh, Leslie and all the team over there. Now, you know, um, this is something that uh, you know, Sir Ryan brought up, but um, I'm I'm curious, and if there is a connection, of course, you know, with UH, but there's also a DBED who has a program called the Broadband Accelerator, and mm-hmm. you know, they're encouraging. Startups and entrepreneurs to you know look at uh, if they're producing a web series to consider the uh, the accelerator. Is there any you know sort of linkage between what Hikino might produce and perhaps pointing some students in that direction if they have some? I mean, young young students have some great ideas on on some cool you know YouTube series, and maybe <laughs> you know maybe there's a there's a hit out there like you know like. Uh, I don't know, Ryan Higa or something, you know. <laughs> the next Ryan Higa. Yeah, right. <laughs> but I mean, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so I'm, I'm wondering, you know, is there any sort of connection between like Hikino and, and the students that they uncover and perhaps pointing them in that kind of a direction? I think that would be great if students are inspired in that way too, to just go out, try new things, be entrepreneurial at that young age because mm-hmm. they, ha- they have all that time to... Explore, d- explore, and develop, and, and you know some of the most popular YouTube series. Not that I watch any of them, but uh, <laughs> you know, are women, um, young women, putting on makeup. I mean, this is like a very popular <laughs> that's cottage so industry. That's, that's yeah. true. <laughs> I was just watching that last night. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. uh, but yeah, I think w- some some of the skills that the students learn in Hikino, if they want to take that direction and decide, hey, I have this idea for a web series, and you know. It, it's not necessarily journalism, but but the production is pretty much the same. Um, that's that would be that's great. Mm-hmm. Now, Shiza, have you applied some of these skills to things that you do outside of the Hikino program, um, creating your own content? 
Uh, I'm not so big on creating my own content. Sometimes it's easier to get the assignment, you know, when you have so many mm. things to do. Uh, getting the assignment itself is the motivation I need to do something like that. When I start having free time, I'll definitely <laughs> dabble in doing um, more freelance things. But the program itself, definitely, you know, all the t- tough deadlines and things like that teach me that deadlines are very important. Yes. And it's something that, you know, I have to learn in college because deadlines are everything. <laughs> so it's just like the balance between everything. I see. Now, um, before we run out of time, Liberty, I did want to talk briefly about the new facility that I think you just broke ground on this week mm-hmm. um, that uh, I think is near Sand Island, um, mm-hmm. a new facility for PBS Hawaii. Um, I know that Hikino is just one of many things that uh, PBS Hawaii does and mm-hmm. part of its mission. Um, but I'm wondering if you could give us a, a preview of what that new space means for the station and for the Hikino program. So actually, when in the very early planning stages of this, this new facility, we actually talked to some Hikino students and we asked them, what kind of, what kind of workplace do you want to be in? Because we're really forward thinking about this facility. It's not just for the current employees, but it's it's for the future employees coming up. And a lot of them said that they liked working in open collaborative spaces, mm-hmm. you know, open places like plans. Google. Right, yeah. exactly. Places like Google, open floor. Yeah, exactly. That encourage collaboration and, and communication and team building. So that was an important consideration that we took in, in mind when mm-hmm. when we were working with the architect and everyone involved in planning this building. Um, but yeah, so we broke ground on Monday morning and Shisa was actually there too. Yeah. And it was just, it was a mo- momentous occasion to finally s- see this. Uh, a lot of people think that it's sort of the end, like, oh, okay, the building's going to go up now. I guess we, that's it. But we're actually still actively fundraising for it too. Mm. We've we've fundraised uh, twenty three point four million dollars so far, and our goal is thirty. So we're six and a half million away. And the reason why I think this facility is so important is because we need a home for programs like Hikino that reach out into the community, that reach out to our youth. I mean that that is a big priority for us, and to have a space where we can be a convener of of in the community. With students, teachers, and any anyone else, we're gonna have we're gonna dedicate two thousand square feet of this facility for students and teachers and anyone yeah. else that wants to come in. We're calling it the Media Innovation Center, and basically, it'll be a place where students can collaborate and and um, work on Hikino stories if they want to and get some training. Teachers too. Yeah, I was gonna ask you. So, two thousand square feet dedicated to kind of the community. Uh, is it primarily for the students, or is it uh, anybody from the community, uh, adults, for example? <laughs> like Bert, Bert, Bert wants to be the next Ryan Higa. We're, yeah, we're, no, we're, I, I think Hikino definitely is a. Is we were thinking initially that that would be for Hikino, but we we're calling it a community space. So so we want to open it up to, you know, whoever, even people who want to look at our check out our facility and learn more about uh, what goes into would um, this be, broadcasting. Would this be kind of in kind of similarity to what Olelo is, is kind of doing with, you know, with their facility, public, uh, I mean, their uh, community broadcasting? Uh, so Olelo, um, I think they let, they, they train their, whoever's interested, and they, they train them to do their own programs mm-hmm, and stuff. Mm-hmm, and they, mm-hmm. they, that's their specific purpose. And right, that's something right. that we respect. And, I don't think we would want to 
delve into that. Exactly, like step on their shoes. Right. Um, but I would see this more as a, a collaborative, open area, um, and students are a priority for us. So mm-hmm. I don't see it in quite that way, but I think in bringing the community to- together in other ways. No, that's a Definitely. good point. Now, uh, Shisa, you, I think you did c- convey a little bit of your vision for yourself, an anchor. We can turn on the local news perhaps and see you, but, uh, <laughs> and, pr- and presumably you said you're interested in one of your uh, majors being journalism at UH. Um, but uh, for a student like you six years ago, um, do you heartily encourage or uh, endorse the Hikino program for somebody uh, with that kind of creative interest? I mean, would you say this is the way to go? I would definitely encourage this for anyone who is interested in this, because when I first started, I told myself it wasn't worth it to pursue journalism because it's such a competitive field and it sounds like super crazy of a, like a sixth, seventh grader to be like, yeah, I want to be a reporter. <laughs> but that was my exact like path when I was that young. And I told myself that I couldn't do it because I'm a woman. That would be super hard because, you know, you grow up watching all these men on TV and just like being a director itself would just be really hard. But when you go through the program, it really shows you and gives you that experience that anyone can do this. It's just that the lack of, for my generation, the lack of interest to do things that you think you can't do. But this program itself just told me, you know what, you can do anything. We're gonna, we're not even gonna tell you you can't do it. We're gonna help you through all these videos. We're gonna give you the direction and everything. And it sounds so cliche, but this uh, this program really was my foundation. The teachers that I had that went through the Hikino process, just like Liberty was talking about with their training and things like that, they had a vision, and their vision was supported by PBS. So it's just like full circle with everything. And now I work at PBS, and it's so crazy because I grew up watching programs like these, and now I get to work for a company like this. And it's definitely that push in the right direction. So I encourage it for Excellent. everyone. Great. So Liberty, where can people watch Hikino? PBSHawaii.org slash Hikino. And what, on any any uh, any particular evening? Uh, so it broadcasts Thursday nights at 7.30 on uh, PBS Hawaii. Fantastic. And you did mention the fundraising. That's pbshawaii.org slash new home. home. All right. Okay. Liberty Peralta is the director of communications. And Shisa Kahaunaili is a production technician over at uh, PBS Hawaii, helping the new students, I guess, get uh, get their hands <laughs> on, on Hikino stuff. And, of course, uh, we want to thank you both for joining us today. Thank you so much thank for having you. us. And thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Join us next week when we'll learn or explore super tsunamis coming from Alaska. And, of course, if you missed any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on bitemarkscafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, email us at feedback at bitemarks.org. Or, of course, you can also find us on Twitter. I'm at BiteMarks. And you can follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chong, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Koslovit. And we leave you with our song pick of the week. Here's a band called Line and Circle and a song called Wounded Desire. See you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe.